Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sokol, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life. You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. This interview is with Michael Dowd. Michael is the author of the best-selling book, Thank God for Evolution, how the marriage of science and religion will transform your life and our world. In this interview, we're going to dive deep into how to survive and thrive in a culture that's bombarding us with biological instincts to act on instantly gratifying temptations. We'll also talk about which of our natural instincts are most mismatched for the modern world and how to deal with them. We'll talk about the actions you can take to move beyond guilt, beyond shame, beyond denial, and beyond resentment. And we'll also go into some of the most important pieces of information that you should understand about both yourself and how you function in society. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here, Jacob. Fantastic. Well, I'm excited to dive right in. Cool. Me too. I mean, this whole notion of a roadmap for young adults, I think, is so vital at this time because we're living in such a different time now than previous generations have ever had to deal with. Absolutely, and that's the core of kind of what we want to help raise awareness about and provide some solutions to. So I think that a lot of the problems that young adults face come from a discrepancy between pop culture ideals and the reality of everyday life. And I think, you know, pop culture sticks these images of beautiful people in front of us and they say, we should be like them. But what they don't tell us is that achieving these levels of portrayed beauty is nearly impossible. They don't mention how being beautiful is these celebrities' full-time jobs, which can include exercising five hours a day, uh, eating strict and expensive diets, and spending hours applying cosmetics, all types of diligent, um, crazy things, right? So there's no way an average young adult that goes to school or has a job or both can compete with that, especially when those images are photoshopped anyway. Right? So um, pop, pop culture tells us to, to value being rich, but it doesn't take into account the economic realities of the culture we live in. It encourages us to value success, but it fails to mention the persistence, the patience, the diligence, and the delayed gratification that it takes to achieve success. So clearly there's a, a gap between pop culture ideals and the reality of everyday life. And the core of the message that you communicate is right relationship to reality. So can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Can I give a little background so that, uh, so that listeners will know where I'm coming from? Absolutely. Cool. Um, my wife and I, Connie Barlow is my wife, and we travel all over North America. For the last 10 years, that's all we've done. We don't have a home. We permanently live out of the generosity of people who open up their homes to us. Uh, and uh, what we do is we... we teach and preach right relationship to reality. Um, My book, Thank God for Evolution, was endorsed by six Nobel Prize winning scientists as well as by theologians and priests and rabbis and skeptics and atheists and the gamut. And we've spoken to about 1,600 groups, and they break down into three radically different populations. Uh, I've spoken hundreds of times to secular, non-religious, skeptic, freethinker, atheist, you know, environmentalist, basically non-religious groups and sometimes even anti-religious groups. I've also spoken hundreds of times to Christian groups, Catholic and Protestant, uh, liberal, conservative, you name it, the whole gamut. And then I've also spoken hundreds of times to New Age, New Thought, 
integral Eastern Enlightenment, Buddhist Hindu, and that sort of thing. And even those, those even though those three groups don't really appreciate or respect each other that much, the same exact message, this science-based, evidence-based message of our inner nature and our outer nature and how to live in right relationship to reality, given that, has been inspiring to people across the spectrum, whatever their religious or philosophical or metaphysical background. And so that's our passion. That's what we do. That's what we do full-time, and that's what we anticipate doing probably till the day we drop. Speaking to young people, sharing, you know, what is it that makes life sometimes challenging? What is it that makes it unfulfilling to pursue the uh, the path that is offered to us, as you say, by pop culture, yet somewhere in our soul, our gut, our heart, our being doesn't resonate deeply with that? In fact, some of us, like you, can achieve you know, quite a bit of success in that, and yet there's something that's still unfulfilling. There's something that's not right. And, of course, what we're now seeing is also a whole new wave of uh, addictions, ways of becoming addicted, things to become addicted to, activities, you know, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, video games, Internet porn, uh, romance novels, social networking sites, you know, Twitter feed. But, I mean, the whole gamut of things that our ancestors, frankly, never had to deal with. So where Connie and I focus on and what our, what our passion is, and in fact, I, I did a, I think, as you know, a, a TEDx talk called Why We Struggle, uh, recently uh, on this topic, and if people don't get that we have instincts, human beings have instincts, just like all other animals have instincts, yet our instincts, we're the only species whose instincts don't serve us. Our instincts evolved over millions of years and were crafted over millions of years to help us survive and reproduce in a world prior to the agricultural revolution some 10,000 years ago. And every year since the last 10,000 years, our instincts are more and more mismatched. We have mismatched instincts. Our in- we have Stone Age instincts that are designed to help us survive and reproduce and thrive in the Stone Age, yet we're living in a space age, and we have space age temptations. And so we're surrounded by all kinds of things, uh, some of them I already mentioned, and a whole bunch of other stuff, that we are evolutionarily programmed to pay attention to and to even want and sometimes even to crave. And, and yet, if we actually fulfill on that, if we actually pursue those things or do them, we become, we become easily, maybe not addicted, but maybe just distracted. Our time and our energy and our focus is distracted. And so really getting that we have Stone Age instincts that are mismatched for the world that we today have to live in, and that we're surrounded by supernormal allurements. That is, things that we're normally allured by, evolutionarily, but now they're in supernormal concentrations. Uh, and everything, I mean, for example, even hard liquor wasn't even invented until 300 years ago. So we're now surrounded by sugar, salts, and fats. We all have cravings for sugar, salts, and fats for the simple reason that for 99% of human history, it wasn't easy to find sugar, salts, and fat. So having a craving for those things allowed our ancestors to survive long enough to reproduce. Yet today, <laughs> we're bombarded. We, I mean, we can't avoid being surrounded by foods that have sugar, salts, and fats, yet we still have the cravings as though they were rare. There's the mismatch. You know, I mean, for, for 99.9% of human history, the people who survived long enough to reproduce were the people who were able to store energy. First of all, they had the instincts to eat as much as they could. 
you know, to, to you know, to eat when the when the food is there, you eat and you pack on the pounds, you pack on the fat, you pack on the energy because that's what fat is. Fat is stored energy because you knew, unless you lived at the equator, you knew that come winter time, food was very scarce. You might have a long drought, and and if you hadn't packed on 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds, you weren't going to survive the winter. And so we have these instincts for storing weight, storing energy. Yet we still have the, the instincts, for example, to eat a lot when we can, to not naturally say no, and, and so on. Take, the, take another, uh, another area, testosterone. One of the things we know, and this is a human universal, this is true for all men and all women, that the higher the testosterone, the more people take risks and the more they think about sex, the more they obsess about sex. And it... it it's like you can take somebody who's totally risk-averse. They never take risks, and they never think about sex. You give them testosterone, and they're going to have sex on the brain, and they're going to take all kinds of risks. In fact, Connie and I stayed at the home uh, of a, a couple, um, I don't know, probably about five or six years ago now in the uh, San Francisco area, and we were talking about this. And the woman mentioned, she said, you know, wow, let me tell you what happened to me, because she said a couple years ago my doctor put me on hormonal patches, on testosterone patches, because I was having some kind of hormonal issue. And she said, after two days, she said, I couldn't stop thinking about sex. And then she says, is this what guys have to deal with? <laughs> well, it is what guys have to deal with. You know, and the interesting thing is, it's like the higher the testosterone, when somebody, let's, let's say that somebody gets elected into public office, or they become ordained, or they become uh, a teacher, or a counselor, or a therapist, or a police officer, or a judge, or they get, you know, whatever. When, if somebody's esteem goes up, if they, if they get a higher status position, their testosterone levels are going to increase. And if it's a significant promotion or, you know, they, they become the vice president of their corporation or whatever, I mean, their testosterone levels will sometimes double or triple or quadruple. And this isn't just true of humans. This is true of all chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas. I mean, this is true of primates. And, and so what this means is they're going to take greater risk. They're going to think more about sex. And they're going to be clueless about what's going on inside of them, what's driving them, because... The, most people don't have an understanding of mismatched instincts. They don't have an understanding of supernormal allurements. And so people on the West, Christians, Muslims, and Jews, they attribute that the reason they're having these challenging temptations and they're struggling with quote-unquote sin and they, they, you know, they find you know, they're struggling with pornography or this, that, or whatever issue they're dealing with, they attribute to the fact that their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother ate an apple. Well, they're not going to have any freedom. They're not, going to have, they're not going to know how to live in impeccable integrity as long as they attribute that the reason that this is the case is taking a mythic story and interpreting it literally. But there's many people on the East and New Age people who think that if they just could witness this to death, if they could just transcend their ego and witness these troubling feelings and emotions, that they'd have freedom. Well, no, that's not the case either. I mean, yes, that can help, but that, the, the root of the issue is evolutionary. It's, it's instinctual, and until we can understand our instincts and then have gratitude for them, you know, like, like we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Nobody would be listening to this right now, and none of us would be alive today if our ancestors didn't have these very same instincts that we sometimes can find challenging and problematic living in a modern, postmodern world, if, if they didn't have those instincts, we wouldn't be alive. And that gratitude, that sense of honoring and gratitude, 
is, in my experience, the single greatest transformative thing. That people can read their Bible to their blue in the face, they can pray, they can meditate, they can do all kinds of other spiritual practices. But if they're not aware, and if they don't honor, if they don't have gratitude for their mismatched instincts and understand what it's like to live in a world of supernormal allurements, they're going to continue to struggle by some really potent things that are in our world. And it's not just the things that are pop cultural. It's not just the things that TV and advertising and whatever is showing. It's just the technology and the information and the availability of all these supernormal allurements, supernormal stimuli. So... Anyway, as you can tell, Connie and I have a lot of passion about talking about this stuff. Fantastic. Wow, there's a lot to digest there. So the thing that comes to mind is, you know, incredible. There was a, a great amount of self-awareness to kind of be able to take in and say, okay, well, maybe it's not me per se. Maybe it's kind of this reality that I've inherited or this body that I've inherited and, and the culture that I've inherited. It's much more than kind of me as a person. It's just what I've... I've fallen into, in a sense, and I've adapted now to be grateful for that. And I'm curious, what are the instincts that you feel like are most mismatched in today's society, and what are the ones that we need to be most careful of? Yeah, that's a great question, Jacob. I would say that certainly the ones that tend to be most problematic for the most people would be some of the ones I've already begun to touch on. I mean, certainly our relationship to feel-good substances, anything that makes us feel good, anything that alters our state in a pleasurable direction, triggers dopamine. We get these dopamine hits at the brain level. And, and what happens is we are programmed to want that. That's how, that's how evolution literally ensured that we would survive and that we would reproduce and that we would be able to survive socially, not just survive physically, but also survive socially in tribal situations. The challenge is, is that we now have things that give us dopamine hits, like, for example, simply checking your Twitter feed or checking your email. Uh, or, you know, I mean, there's so many things that give us dopamine hits that, um, that our ancestors didn't have to deal with, and they become very, very addictive. In fact, even addiction maybe isn't the right word. We become habituated to them because we keep getting the pleasurable dopamine, um, and they can become uh, completely distracting. In fact, I don't know if you saw it, um, just a few weeks ago, there was uh, the cover article of Newsweek. Was was this? It showed this this boy, this like you know young teenage boy, with his head like exploding, and it was called connectivity addiction. And it's basically it's being compared. That the author of the article said that this is as big as climate change because this is impacting an entire generation of not just Americans, Chinese, Japanese people, all, literally all over the world that have access to smartphones, cell phones, uh, iPhones, you know, uh, the internet. And what's happening is that, for example, let me. This is this is frightening when people really get this. Is that we're seeing an absolute explosion of obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anxiety, and all these kinds of things, as well as some things that we have never seen in the history of humanity, which is, for example, the average age of a boy, and this is globally now, this isn't just Americans, the average age of a boy who starts seeking out porn online is the age of eight to nine. And what's happening is these, these boys, by the time they're 11 years old or 12 years old, they're masturbating regularly to porn. And, and now with the high speed, they, they have all, it's not like you know, your grandfather's you know, or your father's you know, Playboy magazine. This is not just static two-dimensional images. 
this, and so what's happening is all this novelty. We are programmed evolutionarily around, around sex, and this isn't just true for men, this is true for women too, is that we're programmed for a certain sense of novelty. Now, men tend to be even more intense around that than women, but we want novelty, especially men. And so what happens is guys, teenage boys, are becoming addicted to masturbating to porn and all these different images. And because the novelty is there, that we get more pleasure when it's, when it's novel, um, what's happening is by the time these boys are 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age, they've got erectile dysfunction. They can't get it up without porn, and they have no way of relating to girls because girls want to do things like talk or, you know, or, 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 or cuddle or whatever. And so by the time these boys are 20, 21 years old, they've got huge problems, and they have no idea that it's connected to their use of porn. And the reason we know this is because <laughs> they tried to find a control group a couple of years ago, they tried to find a control group. In fact, there's a TED Talk on this uh, just called uh, The Great Porn Experiment by Gary Wilson. And he talks about this. They tried to find a control group of, uh, to find out at the brain patterning level what was happening and, and what was happening in boys that didn't become addicted. They couldn't find 15-year-old, 16-year-old boys that weren't regularly masturbating to porn. And it's forming their imagination. It's forming their habits. They're becoming sh shyer. They're becoming more socially inept. Um, and it's, it's just it's stunning what's happening. And this is not just impacting boys because, for example, my, my son, who's 27 years old, I'm 53, my son, who's 27, and his girlfriend is 25, she was sharing with me very honestly about this, that until she met my son, Shane, it was very difficult for her because when she was 19, 18, 19, 20 years old and she started getting sexually active, the boys who she was with were trying to do to her, and she said it that way. It didn't feel like doing with her. It was like doing to her what they had seen in the porn stuff that they'd been watching. And she was, it was painful for her. It wasn't like asking, what do you like, or just, you know, it, she couldn't be naive. She couldn't be young. She couldn't be immature. So the only way she could get erotic was to get drunk first. So she got this habit of drinking first in order to be erotic because it really wasn't that pleasurable to her, and it was very uncomfortable for her to not be able to be naive and inexperienced. You know, she was expected to be a porn star at the age of 19. So yeah. she started dating guys that were practically twice her age because the only guys that would relate to, to women in a healthy way in terms of romance and, and cuddling and touching and that weren't porn addicts were guys in their, you know, uh, late 30s, 40s, and even in their early 50s. And so it wasn't until she met my son that she began to, you know, really grow out of this. And so this whole thing of uh, the entire generation, and again, this is worldwide, this is happening in every country that has access to the internet and access to high speed, especially now with the phones and everything else, is we're seeing this connectivity addiction, we're seeing porn addiction, we're seeing all these kinds of things that are forming, that are triggering our dopamine, they're triggering these brain patterns, but they, they are having a, 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 a dysfunctional aspect on not just individuals, not just couples, but on society. I mean, we've got, it in uh, we've got an entire generation of political leaders that are completely clueless about their testosterone. They're clueless about their Stone Age instincts. They're clueless about, you know, about uh, supernormal allurements. And they don't know things like, for example, here's another thing that's a little bit scary. When men, and this is true again, a human universal, any, all men, gay and straight, when men are away from their primary partner for even as little as two days, their sperm count doubles. 
And when women who are in their fertile childbearing years, okay, women that are after puberty and before menopause, women in their fertile childbearing years, when women who are in their fertile years are in the presence of a very high-status male, the women's testosterone levels will go sky high. It'll double or triple or quadruple. So they're going to take greater risk. They're going to think more about sex. And we have instincts for self-deception. See, that's the thing that most spiritual traditions don't understand, east and west, that we only understand through science, through evidence, through a sacred evidential understanding, is that we now have know that we have instincts. We have physical instincts, instincts for safety, sustenance, and sex, three S's, you know. This is our reptilian brain, our, our, what Connie and I call our lizard legacy, our instincts for, for safety, sustenance, and sex. We also have relational instincts. We have, we have social instincts, our instincts for status, for looking good and not looking bad, uh, for play, uh, for in-group, out-group. We love and care and cooperate with people who we see as the in-group, but we can be practically demonic towards people we think as the out-group, and we can even justify it as that's what God wants us to do, and we see this all over the world. But we also have interpretive instincts. So the, 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 the rational, the neocortex part of the brain is our interpretive instincts, and that's our meaning-making. That's where, that's where we try to predict and control and make meaning and understand and make sense. But it's also where we have instincts for self-deception. And, and if I'm clueless about my Stone Age instincts, and I'm clueless about Space Age temptations, and I'm clueless about my testosterone, and I'm clueless about the fact that any woman in my presence, if I'm speaking at a conference, the women's testosterone levels is going to be completely spiked, so they're going to take greater risks and think more about sex and convince themselves that they're not being more flirtatious with me. I mean, it's not a surprise that we see so many gurus, we see preachers, we see politicians, we see sports stars falling victim to sexual scandal. And it's got nothing to do with transcending their ego. It's got nothing to do with, with pop cultural you know, messages. It's, got nothing, it's, it's completely instinctually driven. That's why, that's why I think it's so important that young people really understand this, you know, the fact that we've all got mismatched instincts, we've got Stone Age instincts, we've, we're surrounded by space-age temptations, and we can have an of course, of course, of course relationship to our instincts. And that's the piece that if, I, if, if, if listeners of this remember anything of all, at all from this conversation, I hope they remember Stone Age instincts, Space Age temptations, and that, we can, that only with a sense of gratitude and honoring, a sense of honoring and gratitude that can only come from knowledge. It can't, we don't get to that level of honoring and gratitude through any other way other than knowledge. But once we have that sense of honorable relationship to our instincts, then we have no guilt, we have no shame about it. It's like, well, of course, of course, of course. You know, and it makes it so much easier to live in integrity, to live in impeccable integrity, because we understand what's going on, we have gratitude for it, and then it becomes, we, we're not ashamed to talk about it, we're not ashamed to, I mean, for example, when I, you know, when Connie sees my wife, when, you know, when we're walking, you know, outside somewhere or maybe driving and, you know, we see a really attractive young woman, it's like Connie will usually say, I know, I know, she deserves to be carrying your baby. You know, and we'll both laugh. And by having that sense of, of course I'm going to, you know, feel that this person should be carrying my baby or at least should be carrying my son's baby, you know, it, it makes it, I'm not flirtatious, I'm not inappropriate. It's like, it's like having an honorable relationship to my mismatched instincts. Um, and understanding super, super normal allurements allows me to, to, to take action in my life and set up structures of support 
so that it makes it much, much easier to live in integrity. And, and I'll just give one example, and then I'll shut up because I'm talking so much. <laughs> give you a chance to suck. Um, about four years ago, uh, I, I flew to we – Connie and I were in um, Washington, D.C., and I was invited to be a keynote speaker at a big science conference, science and religion conference out in, Cal- in um, Hawaii. It was, it was the first international conference on the evolution of religion. So it was, it was mostly academic people who were studying religion from an evolutionary perspective, trying to help it, us understand our brains and our culture and everything else. So Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, was the keynote speaker on Saturday night, and I was the keynote speaker on Sunday night. And so needless to say, I'm in this high-status position. I'm speaking to a whole group of people and everything else. So I know that, A, my testosterone level is going to be up, B, women who are in my presence, their testosterone levels are going to be up. C, that my sperm count is going to be doubled what it normally is because I'm away from Connie. So understanding all that stuff, I have structures of support. For example, there were five men who I emailed or called, and I said, hey, I'm going to be away from Connie for the next week in Hawaii at this conference, and I'm committed to being in impeccable integrity. So I'm going to let you know on Monday when I come back on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 meaning I was wildly flirtatious, 10 meaning I was impeccably integrous, I'm going to let you know where I was at. And having that level of no judgment, no guilt, no fear about myself, but also recognizing that integrity is not a solo sport, it's a team sport, we need each other, allowed me to just, with no, with no fear, no guilt, nothing else, make sure that there were several other men who I trusted to let them know that I'm going to be away. And so I had their support in living and being an impeccable integrity. Now, it might have been easy anyway, but I didn't take the chance because because we really need each other in this. And that's why I think this is, this, this is so vital to have a gratitude relationship to our instincts and to recognize that no spiritual practice, no matter how much you practice it, is going to evaporate the fact, the scientific fact, that we only understand through a sacred understanding of evolution that we have mismatched instincts, we have Stone Age instincts, that we're surrounded by supernormal allurements, uh, space-age temptations, and that integrity is a, is, a, is a team sport. We need each other. Wow. So um, <laughs> for everyone listening to this right now, before me and Michael started recording this conversation, he said one of the biggest challenges of this would be me getting him to be quiet. And um, <laughs> where I'm at right now is he's just thrown out so much, and I've taken you know, a page and a half of notes of, oh, I could say that. Oh, yeah, it would be great right. to go in this direction. That at this point, it's, it's up in the air. So I'm going to go... I'm going to go intuitively with the things that kind of jumped out at me and what I could relate to, and then we'll come back to some of the other things that you spoke about. But I, I can remember also growing up and, you know, having Internet porn and um, all these things are available, and there's um, a level of, I guess, dogma associated with it and, and maybe even shame to say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm alone and this is kind of what I do that nobody knows about. And I can remember when I got to maybe just a couple years ago, I was probably 24 years old, and I was reading a book that said, hey, there's, we're kind of conditioned in this process from the time that we grow up to think of sex as this beginning and end activity where you start with arousal and then you move on to intercourse or whatever happens and then you ejaculate or then, you know, from the man's perspective at least, and then it's over. And that happens because we grow up and, and we kind of go through these processes, but never in, that, in the process of, when you're alone or kind of masturbating or watching porn, do they teach intimacy or love? And therefore, so many of people who watch porn or you know, a lot of the Western world and perhaps probably a lot of the Eastern world also, they, they face these, these intimacy challenges because we weren't, we've kind of 
programmed ourselves, not from an uh, evolutionary standpoint, but from a sense of just our own habits and kind of how we operate, that intimacy and love is not a part of lovemaking um, for us. And that was a huge revelation for me personally to say, okay, maybe it's not about a starting and a beginning endpoint. Maybe this is about not so much ejaculating, but this is about you know, magnifying love and, and uh, intensity and, um, and intimacy. So that was a huge thing for me. Um, and then to also understand that porn is by and, and large targeted and, and kind of created um, for males, for men, at least the, the porn that I think most men watch. And we think that that's normal sex. We think that we need to be these King Kong gorillas pounding our chest in the bedroom and doing backflips and, you know, climbing on kitchen appliances and these crazy things that we see in porn. And that's, 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 not, that's not the reality of what goes on. And, and I didn't understand that, hey, porn is specifically created for men. And there's actually, at least the porn that I was watching, and there's a whole different genre of porn you can actually look up. It's like there's like feminist porn, which is porn that is portrayed differently and, and perhaps targeted towards, towards women or towards like that intimacy feeling. So all very interesting for me at this point in my life to be aware of and kind of see how that also affects my sense of, you know, who, who I am and, and my relationship towards sex as a whole. So I'm going to let you, if you have anything to say, I'll let you jump in there. If not, I keep going. Yeah, no, thanks, Jacob. Uh, well, one of the things that I just want to be mindful of is that this is not just a male issue. This is not just something that men are dealing with. And because anything that does affect men affects society and affects women. And the whole notion that we, that we have deep millions of years, I'm talking millions of years of programming, so that basically our instincts are compelling. They're designed to be compelling. The, the, you know, that's, that's what an instinct is, is it's something that we typically follow and then we rationalize it. We have rationalizing brains. We, we are not rational animals. We are rationalizing animals. And so we will almost always pursue our instincts um, and then rationalize it, unless we're aware, unless we truly have this gratitude, this honoring stance, this sense of, of course, of course, of course, I'm going to feel this temptation. Of course, of course, of course, I'm going to have these thoughts. Of course, of course, of course, I'm going to find this pleasurable or that pleasurable or whatever. And that allows us to make healthier choices because what you're saying is absolutely right. I mean, sex is designed to produce babies, well, to form bonds, to form bonds between people. So that's one of the things that we really understand is that, that, that a raising erotic energy isn't only about procreation, that when two individuals of any gender raise erotic energy with each other, or two or more for that matter, um, there's a bond that's created. There's an intimacy. There's a trust. I mean, this is one of the things, you know, and as long as it's done respectfully and, you know, consensual adults and all that kind of stuff. But there's, there's this sense of bondedness. And, and so if not just men, but if people are, be, are finding, that, and it's because it's now so easy. I mean, before, you know, uh, you, know you had to go into a, an X-rated bookstore or, you know, at least to the supermarket or, you know, or, you know, your 7-Eleven to get, you know, Playboy or Penthouse. And now all of these images are available at the touch of a screen in someone's private home in their laptop or their own, you know, their, their, their you know, iPhone or whatever. And so it's, it's, um, it's, it's creating a whole new level of challenges, especially around what you were just pointing to, which is how do we relate with authentic 
intimacy, with care, with romance. And, and all romance is is thoughtfulness, gentle thoughtfulness. How do we do that? Where do we get the training to do that? Are we going to get the training in, in our churches and synagogues? I don't think so. Are we going to get the training from our parents? I don't think so. Are we going to get the, the, that training from our older brothers and sisters? Uh-uh. You know, where are we going to get it? In our schools? No. So, so you, we've got a whole generation of young people that are growing up with never having, you know, that no generation before ours ever in the history of humanity had to deal with the temptations that we today have to deal with. And we've never been less prepared. We don't, our culture and our religions and our educational systems are not giving us the, what, would be, what I would consider the essential roadmap for young adults, the essential roadmap for how to thrive, which is understanding our best evidence-based understanding of our outer nature, you know, that we aren't separate from the universe, that we're not separate from nature, that, we, that the universe has been expanding for 13.7 billion years, and we're part of that. We're an expression of the universe. That we're, it's kind of like a, a, an apple grows out of an apple tree, where humans grow out of the universe. We grow out of the earth, and so we're a fruit of the earth. We're a fruit of evolution. We're a fruit of the universe. And so that sense of identification, that we are part of nature, we're not separate from nature, that we really are, the universe, after some 13.7 billion years of unbroken evolution, the universe in this solar system started becoming complex enough that the universe could begin to contemplate its own nature. And that's who we are. And that's a fact. This is not a belief. This is not a metaphysical you know, principle. This is a, 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 a widely understood, irrefutable fact that human beings are the universe becoming conscious of itself. We are Gaia. We are the Earth becoming aware of itself. And when young people don't understand that and get that and have practices that help them think that way second nature, you know, so it becomes a part of their natural thinking, they're at a disadvantage in the same way that they're at a disadvantage if they don't understand that they've got Stone Age instincts and how powerful they are, and if they don't understand what it's like to be surrounded by space-age temptations, supernormal allurements. So uh, that's why, I, I, again, as I said, Connie and I are so passionate about taking this message of our inner nature and our outer nature that we get through science, that when I speak to religious audiences, that I say that God, reality, has revealed through science, through evidence. I mean, the, way, the main way that, that reality is revealing itself today, and, you know, one of the things we know is that all cultures have personified reality. What was fundamentally, undeniably, inescapably real got personified as the goddess or the gods or the god or whatever. I mean, we, we find the sacred language as personifications of what was real. And so whether you use religious or secular language, it doesn't matter. But reality is revealing itself today primarily not through ancient texts and not just through our intuitions and our dream states and our, you know, meditative states. But reality is revealing itself, to speak, to use religious mythic language, God is revealing himself, herself, itself, to us primarily through scientific evidence cross-cultural evidence and historic evidence. And so that's modern-day scripture is evidence. And, that, and it's precisely this evidence, this modern-day understanding of, of divine revelation, if you want to use that kind of language, that's helping us understand that, it, that what it takes to live in right relationship to reality, both the reality of our Stone Age instincts, the reality of our species temptations, the reality that we need to live in right relationship with the air, the water, the soil, and other species for our species to even continue, for us to not destroy the life systems of the planet. What does it mean to be in right relationship with 
with other men in this addictive age, with other women? What does it mean to be in right relationship with our parents who come from a very different culture? You know, I mean, it's like there's such a de- generational, for most of human history, we and our parents and our grandparents had the same set of skills. We're dealing with the same kinds of technology. So we naturally revered the wisdom of the elders, our, our, our parents and especially our grandparents. We revered what they had to offer because, frankly, what they had to offer was going to help us to survive and thrive. Where today, young people in their teens and 20s look at their grandparents and they think, these people are clueless. They have no idea what it's like to live in this modern, postmodern world with all the temptations and the issues. and the, you know. So we don't have that same sense of intergenerational reverence. And then you combine that with the whole, you know, the supernormal allurements that old people are now having to deal with. You know, our no generation in human history ever had to say no to the technologies that we have to say no to if we don't want to be hooked up to machines and kept, kept alive artificially with no sense of quality of life and yet at untold expense. We are bankrupting, and I know most of your listeners are going to know this, but, but as a society, and I'll just speak about America here, we are bankrupting the younger generations because we're able to technologically keep people in their 80s and 90s alive with all this technology now, and yet at unbelievable cost, and yet most young people are being shackled by college debt, if they ever get to college, that they'll never get out of. We're spending all this money about it to, in, in people's old age because we have the medical technology to do it, and yet it, 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 Connie and I call it generational injustice. And so these are issues that we're going to have to deal with. But frankly, if we don't understand Stone Age instincts, if we don't understand Space Age temptations, if we don't understand that our best divine guidance doesn't just come from ancient books or dogma or tradition, but comes through every fact. I, sometimes when I speak to Christian audiences, I say facts are God's native tongue. The main way that reality is speaking to us today is through scientific, historic, and cross-cultural evidence. And until we get that, I think that we're going to see these challenges that are, that are individually and collectively and relationally. And again, I, I apologize because I've been going on and on. You got me on a soapbox, <laughs> brother. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, fantastic. So to, to bring it back to the, to the question initially, which was what, what, do we, what do we watch out for? Because I want to make this really practical and, and almost action-based for the people who are listening. I mean, you, you yep. just said so much. It's so enlightening and, and raises so much awareness for kind of what we're going through. And I want them to be able to walk away with a bunch of things they can do after this talk and say, okay, well, yep. Yep. now I'm aware of this. I can re-listen to that talk a bunch of times. What, what, what do I do? So I yep. think one of, the, one of the main things I got out of what you were saying is, that perhaps one of the most mismatched instincts we have is this addiction to feeling good and this addiction to um, these feel-good substances that trigger dopamine release in us. And we get that through all different types of ways. So now that we're aware of that, um, so what's the solution? Do we look to avoid pleasure or monitor where we're getting the pleasure from? Do we base our kind of value system on, let's say, integrity opposed to pleasure? And then then let me get this out also. And then... What, what do we do to create um, structures and principles in our life for being in the right relationship to the world and each other and ourselves and these super, uh, super normal allurements? Yeah, that's great questions. Well, there's a couple things that come immediately to my mind. Connie and I created a, a, just a little five-week. We, we basically tried to say, okay, what would be the essential things that anybody of any age, but especially young people, really need to know in order to not just sort of 
mug along, limp along, but to really thrive. What, what, what's essential? What's, what would be considered essential knowledge about our inner and outer nature that would uh, help people to really thrive and, and have high-quality relationships? And so we did, um, we did a course that I'm probably going to redo, uh, in a, a repackage in, in a new way um, uh, here with, uh, with Brian's, uh, you know, with this, this whole you know, Entheos Academy, which is so fabulous. But, but it's still you can find a lot of that information online. It's just evolutionize your life. So we were trying to create something which is just sort of a simple a step-by-step thing. The other thing, a couple of resources. My son, my 27-year-old son, who's also a, a life coach and, and a trainer, he works with athletes and that sort of thing, uh, including Olympic athletes and whatever. He and I and this other guy, Jed Diamond, who's 68, so I'm 53. So we've got 27, 53, and 68. We're creating a, a, a program that we'll be launching at some point in the next few months called Men Evolving Men. And it's basically just a very, we want something that's completely affordable that any man can take advantage of that really helps them to grow in the knowledge of this stuff and in the practices and the community support to really thrive with this. So that'll be up online at some point. But until then, frankly, there's just a couple of really great resources that I just want to make sure I mention. One of them is um, if people put into Google uh, big integrity resources, big integrity resources, I think the subtitle uh, of that post was Growing in Right Relationship to Reality. And I put that blog post together as a tool that anybody could access, and it's got just all kinds of great books and websites and blo- you know blogs and podcasts and all kinds of you know YouTube clips and everything else on on resources that will help people to live in right relationship to their inner and outer world. So I certainly recommend that resource. The other thing is that there's a five-minute TED talk, five-minute TED talk called "The Demise of Guys." The Demise of Guys by Lombardo, I think is the guy's last name. And um, it's, it's fabulous. It's a gem. And so I recommend that to everybody listening, both men and women. But also uh, Gary Wilson, my colleague uh, and new friend Gary Wilson, who uh, has a, uh, his amazing website called Your Brain on Porn, yourbrainonporn.com. Uh, is just phenomenal. He's the one that did the TED Talk uh, on the great porn experiment. He's got like a six-part series and a four-part series. They're just very short, little YouTube things, but they're, they're so powerful that I've talked to a number of guys who used to be fairly regular porn watchers, and once they watched Gary Wilson's great porn experiment, they just sort of stopped watching porn or very rarely watched it. And it wasn't even because they were committed to not doing it. I mean, speaking for myself, I mean, in the last probably five years, I've probably averaged maybe one, you know, watching one porn thing every other month. It's just not something that at my age I've been really obsessed with or really into that much. But ever since I watched Gary Wilson's uh, thing on uh, his TED Talk that, that's up on his Your Brain on Porn, for some reason I just have not watched porn even once. And it's not even because I was committed to not doing it. I just didn't find I had a taste for it. It was like once I became aware of what damage this is doing to men's brains, to couples, to to women, to relationships, to society, I realized, you know, I don't want to participate in that. Now, I'm not claiming that this is going to last forever and I'm not going to watch porn again. None of that. You know, but uh, I just know that's the case. So I recommend uh, his his website. And I guess the last thing I would I would say... Uh, Jacob is to really um, 
is I've, my TED Talk, uh, which if you just put Michael Dowd, TEDx, T-E-D, capital T, capital E, capital D, with a little X, you'll get there. My, my, uh, my TED Talk is called uh, Why We Struggle, and um, it's, it covers some of the same material we covered on this call, um, and, it, and uh, I, did, I, I blog regularly for the Huffington Post now, but if, if anybody wants to, if there are any men that are listening to this call that want to be aware of the Men Evolving Men program that my son and uh, Shane and, and myself and uh, Jed Diamond will be unrolling here in another few months, uh, just send me an email. My email is just michael at thegreatstory.org, michael at thegreatstory.org. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to have to check out that Your Brain on Porn thing, and uh, I'll get back to you on that. Um, in, in the meantime, so I'm curious, again, you listed a bunch of great resources, and I'd like to know particularly what action steps people can take now. Like I know personally I get bombarded with information on the Internet, and there's a ton of not-so-great stuff, but there's a ton of great stuff also. So as far as setting up structures, like you mentioned when you went to this conference that um, you kind of had a structure and accountability group in place. But what can we do today? What can we do at the end of this call right now to set up structures um, in place that help us deal with these super normal allurements? And also, I, I don't know if you have like principles that you kind of abide by, or if you, you know, value. I'm, I'm going to leave the question there so we don't get too, well, too yeah, far off. Yeah, I, I do, uh, Jacob. And thanks for asking. I mean. I think one of the reasons why my book, Thank God for Evolution, was endorsed by so many Nobel Prize winning scientists and skeptics and humanists as well as religious people of all backgrounds and colors, I mean like, you know, it's about a 200 people that have endorsed my book across the spectrum, is the practical exercises in chapters 11 and 12. In fact, I've had many people tell me that the only two chapters that they read in my book were chapters 11 and 12. Um, and the reason is that they're practices, they're exercises that come from science, that come through our best. Like we now know evidentially that if you write letters of gratitude, if you communicate to the people in your life who've made a blessing to you, who, who, you know, who've, who've in some way contributed to you positively, and you communicate to them that you're just really grateful for their impact in your life, you get a dopamine hit that's far, almost, it's, you can't even hardly find anything that gives you a more powerful dopamine hit. When you're generous towards somebody, when you do an act of kindness, when you do something that blesses someone else, the dopamine hit is so severe, it's almost like a, an injection of a drug. Um, when you confess, the secrets that people carry, they have no idea how those secrets are weighing them. And if you just find one other person that you trust and simply share with that person all the stupid-ass, dumb, you know, uh, arrogant uh, deceptive, addictive, whatever things you just—it's like it's like you know confession. It's like sharing the stuff so that nobody, so that you're not carrying those secrets anymore. That doesn't mean you're telling everybody. It means you know it, it, it's where you're not carrying those. It's unbelievable how the quality of a person's life can be improved by simply no longer carrying secrets. Same thing with resentments. People who carry resentments don't realize that the the person who suffers from a resentment by far, like five times more than anything else, is you. The stupidest thing that any person can do is be resentful and carry that resentment. So when we forgive another, when we can let go of the resentment and trust that, you know something, if I was in that other person's shoes, given their genes, their history, their beliefs, and their background, I'd have probably said or done exactly what they said or did. And when we can have that kind of just letting go, that letting go of resentment, our lives improve. Um, 
you know, uh, the, the structures of support that I have. I, I have, uh, for example, uh, you know, the, these integrity circles. When we create integrity circles, like what does it mean to be in impeccable integrity? What does it mean to be those, what are those areas that are slippery areas? And what are the things that absolutely, if we do or drink or partake in this activity or this substance, we're out of integrity? You know, if we, you know, whatever. And to identify your red circle, your yellow circle, and your green circle. Your red circle are the things that are absolutely out of integrity. Your yellow circle is the things that you need to pay attention to and you need to be accountable to. You need to have some support around. And then the green circle are all the things that you should be doing as much as possible because they make your life thrive and they make the people in your life thrive. So what I would say that in addition to the resource I mentioned in terms of practices, um, you know, any of the things I just mentioned, but certainly uh, if anybody does get my book, Thank God for Evolution, just read chapters 11 and 12. Feel free to ignore everything else because those are the practical exercises. That's fantastic. Yeah, I could see so many people getting so much out of having those exercises to go to, um, especially after you just you shared so much invaluable information with us that isn't offered in normal society, isn't offered in our schools or colleges, and kind of to have that awareness now. So it can feel so liberating, like, fantastic, I've got this information, but then it's a little overwhelming and perhaps even disappointing a day or two later because it's, what, that, what, what do I do with that now? So the fact well, that, that we... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're pointing to the single most important thing, which is that information does not transform habits. And so we think, of, we think consciousness raising is a good thing. We think that more information is a good thing. Well, not necessarily. Information and consciousness raising are certainly a step in the, pro, in the process. But unless we have structures and support, unless we have accountability, for example, unless we have support and accountability, the two things that are considered essential for habit change, for skill development, is peer support and accountability. And, you know, it's not the same as committing to sitting on a cushion for another half hour a day and meditating even more or spending more time in the Bible or anything else. I mean, it, it's really about how do we create the support, the peer support and the accountability so that we're getting support from others in skill development, habit development. And there's no short circuit for that, but that's where I think that that's where the juice is. That's where we really start not just thriving individually, where we start seeing the results in our relationships. I mean, Connie and I, for example, we've been married for 11 years. She's 60. I'm 53. And our relationship is at a 10 on a scale of 10, like 1 meaning it can't be worse, 10 meaning it can't be better. We're at a 10 on a scale of 10 99% of the time. And this is no bullshit. And I'm, I'm including sexually. And when we get down to a 9.5 or a 9 or a 7 or an 8, we've got a couple of little tools, a little practices that we use to consistently get us back there. And so literally 98, 99% of the time in, in any given day, and you could talk to Connie and she'd say the same thing, and it's because we've taken these practices and developed these, and it doesn't even require each person to be evolved. Connie, for example, has spent almost no time on personal growth, psychological growth, healing. She's a pretty unevolved person, and she'd be the first person to tell you that. Now, I've spent much of my adult life in personal growth and psychological growth and spiritual practices and everything else, and it only takes one person in a relationship to calibrate so that the relationship thrives. And so I'll share this as sort of the last practice that comes to my mind and heart to share, which is the practice of creating an entity that is the whole that is more than the sum of you. Anybody who's in a relationship, for example, me and Connie, there's Connie, there's Michael, and then there's Jasmine. 
And Jasmine is the mythic name that we've given for we, or for us. It's like we've, given up, we've, we've made up a personality. We've made up a, a, an entity called Jasmine. And Jasmine is the whole that's more than the sum of the two of us. But by having that mythic name, Jasmine, it allows it to, it shifts, for example. It's a practice. It's not the same as meditation. It's the practice of thinking holistically or holonically. So that, for example, it's very clear sometimes what Connie wants to do. And it's very clear what Michael wants to do. But when one of us asks the question, what does Jasmine want to do? It allows me as a man to not be attached to what I thought, so that if we end up going with what Connie wanted to do, or sense that Connie was the better direction, whatever, I don't feel like she's won and I've lost. I feel proud that I've stepped in and I'm choosing what's good for Jasmine. Now, why it is that Jasmine usually wants to do what Connie wanted to do in the first place, I haven't figured that out, <laughs> but I know that our relationship thrives by, by having this mythic name for we or for us. And that's a practice that you don't read about in most spiritual texts or whatever, but in our case, it's been vital at keeping our marriage at a 10 on a scale of 10, even though we've been together for 11 years married, and we still have, we still have sex like we're having on a honeymoon. Well, that's, uh, that's such a cool practice. I've never thought about that. That's, that's whew, you're taking the words out of me right now. Um, but I want to I wanna come back to support and accountability because I, I want people to be able to walk away from this and, and go to an action step right now. So I can, I can kind of reference my own life. And I, I had just taken a trip to uh, Southeast Asia where I was traveling around for three months, and I was really focused on growing my business. And I figured, okay, it's a lot cheaper to focus on my business in, a, uh, in Southeast Asia and some of the most beautiful places in the world than it is to pay rent and, and food prices in New York City, which is where I live, my home. So I took this trip and I was so committed to being on my laptop and growing my business that I started to feel towards the end of the trip really disconnected, um, disconnected from society, disconnected from people. And I, and I started to go through a really rough time. And when I came up, well, towards the end of the trip, I, I just realized I've got to put that away and I've got to start figuring out how do I communicate with people from my core? How do I talk about the things I'm actually going through, no matter how hard those may be in my life right now, opposed to going into seclusion and isolation, let me do the counterintuitive thing, which, to be, which for me would be to actually go towards people and, and open up and be vulnerable and allow myself to, to be who I am in that moment. So one of the structures that I put in place was I emailed two of my really good friends at home and I said, hey, guys, traveling, you know, I've, in all my experience in traveling, I always come back with a lesson if I travel for more than about a month. The lesson this time is this. Connection is where it's at for me. It doesn't matter, you know, I could have all the success, all the money, all the fame, everything else in the, in the world that seems glamorous. If I don't have people to share that with, if I don't have people to, to be there for me and for me to be there for them in, in both the good and the bad times, then it, it doesn't mean that much to me. So let's, let's do this. Let's have a bi-monthly, or rather every two weeks, let's set up a support group where, um, where we meet with each other and we just say, this is what we're going through. These are our feelings. We're going to lay them out. And, and we laugh because we call it Guys Night Out. And when we think of Guys Night Out, I mean, what do you think of? You think of football and wings and beer, and here we are, three pretty big guys talking about our feelings and our emotions and kind of just opening <laughs> up. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And, and the changes that have occurred in all of our lives, having that integrity and that commitment to meeting with each other every two weeks has been fantastic. So I'm curious kind of what that, that perhaps could be one structure that people can put in place 
kind of mimic that or use that as a template. But, but what, what else would you suggest that are, are really good practices? People can you know, stop listening to this when it's over and just say, okay, I'm going to email this person, I'm going to call this person, I'm going to do this thing that can put me on the track to having that support and accountability to create the habits to then deal with the you know, super normal alarmants and, and the other challenges that um, we face. Yeah, boy, great question, Jacob. I, I would say, first of all, I want to echo what you just said, and I want to I want to say amen to that or aho to that, because mm -hmm. there is nothing more helpful, especially in this modern postmodern age, uh, when we recognize that we have Stone Age instincts, that we have mismatched instincts, when we recognize that we are surrounded by supernormal allurements. Um, to have one or two or three or four other people who we can periodically just be completely authentic with, just transparent. We don't have to pretend we've got it all together. In fact, the more humble we are, I mean, there, there's four character traits that we know, we know evidentially, there's no, no beliefs about this. We know evidentially that if these four character traits are present, people can thrive and the relationships thrive. But if one or more of these are missing, they're going to struggle. And so how do we support each other in growing in these four fundamental character traits that we find in every religious tradition? There's no religious tradition that doesn't have these four at the heart. And it's also at the heart of the 12-step recovery program and other recovery programs. And the four, quite simply, are trust or humility. It's, it's the opposite of arrogance right? and the opposite of fear. So trust or humility. The second is authenticity, being authentic, being real. The opposite of that would be being inauthentic, being dishonest, whatever. Um, lying. The third is responsibility, like the opposite of the blame game. In other words, rather than judging and blaming others or the world or the universe or God or whatever for the quality of my life, taking responsibility. So trust, authenticity, responsibility, and the third is service, being of service to something larger than yourself, being a blessing to the world, being a contribution to others. And to the degree that we can meet with others like you did and like you're doing, where, you know, every other week you talk with men, you know, uh, you know these, these friends about your feelings, about what your challenges are, whatever. You are, just by doing that, you're helping each other grow in trust, or humility, authenticity, responsibility, and service. And so certainly one thing that people can do as soon as they hang up the phone here is make a commitment to talking to one other person and sharing along these lines, or, or watch, the, watch that five-minute TED Talk, The Demise of Guys, you know, or watch Gary Wilson's TED Talk, the, uh, you know, the Great Porn Experiment, or watch my TED Talk on, on uh, you know, uh, why we struggle, and then simply have a conversation along the lines of how can we support each other in growing in deeper integrity, growing in deeper right relationship to reality. Another one would be to make a commitment as soon as you get off the phone to write an email or a letter or to communicate in some way gratitude to some person in your life who you've not actually taken the time to communicate gratitude about. That will give you a dopamine hit that will last you a week. <laughs> it can, it's that transformative. I mean, when we simply express gratitude, when we let go of resentments, I mean, I went through, as I think you may know, a few years ago, I went through uh, a very serious bout of cancer where I was looking at the possibility I could die in the next month. I had a tumor the size of my fist and my spleen. And, and I had what religious people call the peace that passes understanding. 
And it's not because I was expecting that my soul or spirit or consciousness was going to go to some supernatural place after I died. I'm a religious naturalist. I think that where we go to after we die is the same place we came from before we were born. And whether you speak of that as coming from God and returning to God or coming from mystery and returning to mystery or coming from nothingness and returning to nothingness, you know, it seems to me that we go to the same place that all other plants and animals have gone to. So I was a, I'm not holding out hope for pearly gates, and yet I had this unspeakable gratitude for the past and unspeakable trust in the future, including whatever happens on the other side of death is just fine. And it was this being at peace with my inner and outer nature. And I had done the practices that I'm now talking about. I was, I, I've, everybody in my life who I can remember that has been a blessing to me, I've in some way communicated to them how grateful I am. I, I don't have any resentments. I don't have any secrets. And living with no secrets, no resentments, and no unfinished business is truly oh. heavenly. And we can do that. We don't have to wait to die to experience heaven. That's available to us on this side of death, but it usually requires the kind of thing you just talked about, which is having at least one or two other people that I can be regularly authentic with and where we can support each other in growing in integrity, growing in right relationship to reality. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I want to honor your time, and I know you said you can go a little bit over, so I'm going to ask you another question or two, um, just because there's so much goodness here. So I think one of the barriers that stands in the way for people is um, of of that kind of connection and opening up is is shame, and they feel like... um, Have you seen Brene Brown's uh, talk on vulnerability? Um, I'm not sure. Brene Brown sounds familiar, so I may have, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay, fantastic. So I'll send you a link for that. I will also send it to everyone listening to this call. But she she differentiates the difference between shame and guilt. And she says, guilt is, I did something wrong, where shame is, I am something wrong. So guilt is an action. and, And yeah, and shame is something that we are. And I think a lot of times we're afraid to open up to other people because we feel ashamed of who we are. Like there's something about us that if other people would know, they'd run the other way and, and we'd be outcasted and kind of you know, made fun of and, and just not accepted. And we'd be exposed for kind of the, the non-worthy person that we are. And I think that can be a, a barrier for a lot of people in, in doing these kind of things yeah. and being authentic and, and trusting other people and, and kind of taking that on. So do you have any kind of practices for moving past shame um, and, and kind of how would you take a, a stance at approaching that obstacle? Sure. Well, the first thing, and in fact, to be honest with you, Jacob, I think that the only thing that can move many forms of shame that can evaporate that is knowing, having a knowledge base factual understanding of their own nature and what it's like to live in a world of supernormal space age temptations and having having stone age instincts and until we get that man you can try whatever practice you want to evaporate or lessen the shame and it's not going to work because until you get that of course of course of course i think this way or of course of course of course i feel this way because here's the thing about an evolutionary worldview is that our instincts, our feelings, our feeling of shame, our feeling of guilt, our feeling of resentment, our feel, all of our feelings, including all the uncomfortable feelings, all the difficult feelings, the challenging feelings, that so many people try to witness to death and everything else, those feeling states evolved. They evolved because we're social mammals. 
we are social creatures, and they evolved to help us know that we're out of right relationship with our social context, with our partner, or with mm-hmm. our tribe, or with our community, or whatever. And so, you know, those feelings today can be engaged by all kinds of things, but when we get that sense of, of course, of course, of course, then we find that the, the shame is gone, but the guilt, for example, if I, if I betrayed somebody, you know, I can pray, I can meditate, I can do whatever spiritual practice to try to lessen that guilt. The only thing that's going to take away that guilt is when I tell my brother that I fucked his wife. In other words, there, there's certain things that are evolutionarily programmed. And by the way, if anybody's listening to this, I have not had sex with my brother's wife, so I'm just using that as an example. But in other words, it's, it's our feelings are, are, are signals to us. They're gifts from the universe that we've been out of integrity. And there are certain practices that are not about just meditating. There are certain practices of being in communication, actually being, having some kind of communication with someone, either confessing something, either telling someone that you know you had a negative impact on them, and if you could go back and do it differently, you would. Um, apologizing, you know, in the 12-step program, they call it making amends, the ninth step. I mean, there are certain practices that we know that when you do that practice, all of a sudden the guilt is gone, and it's gone forever. Mm. You know, the same thing with resentments. It's like if I can actually imagine being in the shoes of the other person who I'm now resentful towards and really feel like from the inside that if I had their genes, their history, their beliefs, I'd have probably said or done exactly as they did, and really allowing myself to be with that, to feel that, then, yeah. and even going beyond that, to communicate to that other person and say something like, you know, I've been a real asshole. I've been holding this resentment towards you, and, and it's crazy. I haven't even been seeing how I contributed to that. I mean, those kind of communications bring about tears. They bring about reconciliation. I mean, there's certain practices that will almost always bring about magic in relationship. And this is the kind of thing that I think young people need to learn. We need to support each other in. Um, it, like, for example, I'll go ahead and flesh out that one a little bit more thoroughly. Yeah, no, well, let me, let, me, let, let, me, let me ask you real quick. So then what are the things that you think we're most ashamed of that we don't realize is normal, that we don't realize, okay, these are our, our instincts, for instance, like, well, you know, certainly eating, most of us eating have no shame. Most of us have shame about anything that we do in private that is either quite pleasurable or exceedingly pleasurable. And yet our culture, our religion, our family, our upbringing, whatever, would judge it, condemn it, whatever. So it can be related to foods. It can be related to foods that have sugar, salts, and fats. It can be related to anything that causes our consciousness or our feelings to shift, various drugs and alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, video games, shopping, internet porn, romance novels, all the things I rambled off at the beginning. It's like all of those things we, we, we... we will have, or we usually have, some degree of shame about, unless we really get that, of course, of course, of course I'm going to find that pleasurable. Of course, of course, of course I'm going to want to be tempted by that. You know, that's where this instinct model, what I call the instinct integrity model, it's different than the sinful nature model of human nature. It's different than the transcending ego model of human nature. It's the instinct integrity model. And that's what evaporates, in my experience, that the shame... The self-condemnation can just evaporate and does when we really get 
how powerful our instincts are, how mismatched they are, and how and how, what it's like to live with supernormal allurements. I mean, a, a simple book that people can read that many people find transformative is Deirdre Barrett, her book called Supernormal Stimuli. I've had many people tell me that they read that book and they all of a sudden the things that they were feeling shameful about just are gone. I mean, it's gone forever. They never have shame about that anymore because they now have knowledge about what's driving them, what's going on under the hood. You know, it's kind of like if you if you had a really fancy car. In fact, I think I used this analogy in my TED talk. If you have a really fancy car, but it's running so ragged that it's hardly running at all. I mean, it's just limping along. But you've never opened up the hood, and you don't you don't know anything about the history of the in the internal combustion engine. So you're just making up stories. You're just like making up like, well, it, it's the ego. It's, this, it's the inner demons or, you know, it's the homunculus or whatever. I mean, you're just making stuff up. And what this evolutionary <laughs> understanding of our, of, of, of our mismatched instincts and supernormal allurements does is it's like it's, it enables to open up the hood and we understand what's driving us and why. And until we have a gratitude and honoring relationship to what's driving us and why, most of us are going to have some form of shame. And any spiritual practice that you can try to do in the world is only going to be limited in its impact. What the only spiritual practice, if you want to use that kind of language, is going to evaporate that shame is to really get why we've been programmed for millions of years, if that's the case, and then accept it and then honor that and have this, you know, you know that old adage, what you resist persists? Yep. Well, what you can be grateful for, what you can honor can be utterly transforming. And that's why having this honorable stance rather than a dissing stance or a fearful stance or a judgmental stance or a guilt stance or a shameful stance towards our deepest inner impulses is, frankly, the only path to heaven that I know of. It's the only thing that brings about real peace. Right on. Um, awesome. So just to clarify, one one burning kind of last um clarity that, that I'm kind of looking for. It's around this pleasure, okay, around and we're, we're bombarded with all these stimuli and all these kind of opportunities to, to get pleasure. So what, what should our relationship be to these things that kind of release or trigger the, the dopamine in us? Is there something that, you know, is there a balance or is there a certain well, kind of outlook yeah. we take on it or is there something yeah. else that we say, okay, instead of pleasure, I'm going to honor integrity higher than that and say, okay, well, what's, what's in, you know, of integrity to me? How do you approach yeah. that? Well, there's, it's a great question. I'm really glad that we're, you know, sort of winding up with this question because it's such a vital one. I mentioned before the three circles that I talked about in, in chapter, I think it's 10 or 11 of my book, where, you know, you, your inner circle, your green, your, your uh, red circle, that's the one, that's anything that you do, and a, any form of pleasure, any way of, anything in your red circle is out of integrity. Those are the things that you just know through your experience that if you do that, if you drink that, if you smoke that, if you take that, you're going to be out of integrity. It's going to lead you down a path that's not going to be healthy for you or others. So that's your red circle. And that's the stuff that, you know, you would consider your sobriety date or your, you know, like that, that's just in or out of integrity. Then your yellow circle are those things that are your dopamine pleasure center, you know, that give you pleasure, that give you enjoyment, that trigger dopamine. They're not necessarily, you know, that doesn't mean you're out of integrity. They can actually be tremendously pleasurable and wonderful and can be life-giving, yet you need to have some support around. You, you, it, it's good to have some level of accountability, some support, uh, because it can't, it's kind of like, the, it's kinda like the, the, uh, the analogy I've heard. It's kind of like the warning field of a baseball 
diamond. That you know, when the outfielder is going back and back and back to catch the fly ball, if his or her feet hit the warning track, you know that within a few feet you're going to slam up against the wall. And so it's that warning track, and that's what the that's what this inner the yellow circle or the sort of middle circle is. And then the green circle are all those forms of pleasure. And I mean, frankly, Jacob, I get off on being an integrity. I get off on noticing. Uh, 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 like, for example, being in a context of somebody who I'm clearly attracted to, and they're clearly attracted to me, and we're alone in that person's home, and I've got to spend the night there because she's a board member of this, of this organization that invited me, and I didn't know until I was there that she was a total blend between my mother. She looks like my mother, but two <laughs> decades younger. And she has the sensibilities and the, and the, uh, the, the, the aesthetic sense of my first wife. And she's got all this tantric artwork all over the house, and she's got a hot tub, and she smokes dope. And it's like, <laughs> you know, talk about temptation. I was like, holy <laughs> shit. And so it's like what I did was having no shame, no guilt around my inner nature, understanding this, of course, of course, of course, I'm going to want to jump this woman's bones and not making it mean anything. It allowed me to say to her, can we have an integrity conversation? And mm-hmm. she kind of cocked her head, and she said, what's that? And I said, I promise to not seduce you or try to seduce you. And I really would love it if you could make that same promise to me. And she giggled, and she looked me in the eyes, and she said, happily. And from that moment on, we were able to be in the hot tub together. We were able to be with the eyes. There was no funkiness. There was no inappropriate flirtatiousness. And it was just having an integrity conversation that I probably wouldn't have had if I didn't have this evolutionary understanding of my instincts and this gratitude-honoring relationship to, you know, of course I'm going to want to smoke her dope. Of course I'm going to want to jump her bones. It's like, duh. Well, let me ask you, and I think I may know the answer to this question, but have you and your wife ever talked about having an open relationship? <laughs> My first wife and I, for the last half of our marriage, we did have that. So I'm one of those rare people that have had a tremendous – I was married for 13 years – with Allison, my first wife, the second half of our marriage, we had an open, committed relationship. We practiced what I call, what's often called polyamory. Yeah. And ultimately, it, it meant that she met somebody uh, who she felt was a better fit for her than I was, and she, she was actually more interested in being in a monogamous relationship with him than being still married to mm-hmm. me. So we got a divorce. We never used lawyers. We never contested anything. And, and she and I are still best friends to this day. She and Charles, her husband, that she's been with for the last 16 years, he's, he, we're best friends. In fact, just three weeks ago, Connie and I stayed at the home of my first wife and her husband, Charles, and we all get along great. So I have had a very positive experience with responsible non-monogamy, with, with, with integrous non-monogamy. But I also can say this, honestly, it ain't necessarily easy. I mean, celibacy has its own challenges and its own blessings. Monogamy has its own challenges and its own blessings. And honest non-monogamy or, or polyamory has its own challenges and its own, its own you know, uh, blessings. So, but I do defend the right for people to have, to be able to, Basically, I defend the moral and legal right for people to b- relate in that more tribal kind of way. Now, with, with Connie and I, we got married with the understanding that I could still occasionally be with others, you know, former lovers or whatever, as long as she knew about it ahead of time or whatever. And yet when it came time to try to schedule time for me to be with, you know, someone else, it was excruciatingly painful for Connie. So to her credit, she was trying to get her heart around it. She was trying to recognize, you know, do it. But... 
here's the thing that a lot of people in the polyamory movement don't really get, which is instincts for jealousy are deep. They're profound. The idea that we can easily transcend jealousy is New Age bullshit. It's just not true. <laughs> Some people can do it, but most people can't. For good right on, bro. And so, yeah. and so, uh, so we tried it. Uh, the first when we got married, we you know there was the first two years was very challenging for Connie because occasionally we'd try to schedule for me to be with a former lover or somebody for a weekend, and it was so excruciatingly painful to Connie that we had to call it off. And then I made this decision because I had read the book Natural Monogamy. I made the decision that the most compassionate thing I could do, talk about my self-deceptive instincts, was to just not tell her. So I actually was sexual with a couple of people behind her back. Well, it almost destroyed our marriage. And so for the last nine years, we've been monogamous, and, and, and we love it. So I've had a very positive experience non-monogamously. I've had a very positive experience monogamously. And for this relationship, as long as Connie and I are together, the only thing that's going to work, that's only, the only thing that's going to allow us to thrive is to be impeccably monogamous. Hey, and, and I think about your commitment to Jasmine and that how that may, if you were kind of non-monogamous, how that would maybe take some of the energy away from that. Michael, well, I, I, really, I, I really want to respect your time here, and, and at the same time, I feel like there's such a deep well of incredible wisdom that is not offered um, to young adults around these kind of sexuality subjects. Uh, let's, let's touch base after this conversation. I don't know if you'd be up for another 30-minute chat kind of specifically on this subject at some time or not, um, but I, this is, Jacob, to, I, to me, tr yeah. Yeah, trust me, my, 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 Connie and I are so passionate about taking this sacred science-based message, sacred evolutionary perspective of our, of our Stone Age instincts in, space, in a world of space age temptations to young people and talking about this stuff that, yes, I'm more than happy to have a conversation with you just about this topic. Um, because, like I said, I've had a positive experience on both sides of the aisle. Both both different options are really positive, not just mildly positive. And I've also done some fairly extensive writing on this subject. So I'm happy to share my experience. I'm happy to share what, what I know or what I have experienced works and doesn't work and sort of some of the landmines along the way um, just on the topic. So, sure, happy to. Yeah, that's, uh, Actually, that's I want to say one thing related yeah. to that because you, you mentioned the thing with Jasmine. Allison did say, that there was a point where her relationship, because Allison and I had the same thing. There was Michael, there was Allison, and then there was Aluna. And we had given the name Aluna as the mythic name. And, um, and we did have a different relationship to Aluna when we opened up our marriage. And, and it wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. But nonetheless, it, it did shift. And so what Connie and I now have is a kind of, it's, it's, it's what's sometimes called bonded attachment. There's a bonded attachment that Connie and I have now that Allison and I, I don't think, ever got to in the same way, even though we were married for 14 or 13 years, because the last half of our marriage, we kept having these, you know, once or twice a year, we'd have a new infusion of a new lover. Or, you know, and the last several years that Allison and I were together, the two of us were in love with the same woman. So the three of us lived together, we slept together. I mean, it was like, if I could have been legally married to both of these women, I would have been. It's what ultimately got me kicked out of my last church. Um, so, uh, you know, but I, but I will say that Aluna shifted as a result of that. And I, I, for one, want to go on record and say that even though I will defend people's right, moral and legal right, to have alternative styles of lovemaking and alternative styles of love relationship, I, there's something that's available in the monogamous relationship that Connie and I have now 11 years of being married and 12 years of knowing each other that in my experience is 
priceless. I would not trade it for anything in the world. And I don't make my nature wrong. I'm still as much tempted by other situations. But I now chuckle. I now am light and laugh. I have this playful relationship with my instincts, which allows me to not be sabotaged by them. Such an honor. Incredible, man. I'm uh, totally thrilled with the conversation that we had. I know that young adults just got a ton out of listening to this. And I'm really excited to get this wisdom out there to them and appreciate all the integrity that you have and all the practices that you have in place and the experiences that you've gone through, which probably weren't always the easiest, and how you've turned those into something that is of service and authenticity um, and trust and, and responsibility to the world. So thank you so much, and we'll be in touch as far as scheduling something in the future. I'm really excited about it all. Well, great. Thank you, Jacob, and thank you for the, the, the questions and the, the, the quality of this conversation. And I just I don't want to leave listeners thinking that I've been this paragon of integrity, because those two years, those first two years with Connie, where I justified, uh, well, after the, probably the first year, but there was a period of about a year where I justified being out of integrity. And man, I was a lying sack of shit. I was a scumbag, and I caused hell for her. And so it's the pain that I've caused my first wife, Allison, and, and Connie that has helped sort of soften my heart. And, uh, and I would love to be of support in any way that I can to young people in this process. Okay. Very excited about it, Michael. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Jacob. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So let's take a look at some of my favorite big ideas from this chat. Big idea number one is space age temptation and stone age instincts. So many of us wonder why we crave the experiences, the food, the sex, and all the things that don't serve us. Why is it that we can't seem to control those urges? It's because the root of our struggle is evolutional. We have primal instincts that haven't quite arrived in the 21st century yet. This mismatch between how the stone age parts of our brain function and the supernormal allurements available to us all day, every day, make it hard for us to resist these temptations. Big idea number two, of course, of course, of course. We grew up with all these ideas about what kind of feelings we should experience and which ones are immoral and unacceptable to have. But Michael tells us that the only way we can thrive in this space age time with our stone age instincts is not by denying them, but to live in harmony with them. So how do we do that? The best way would be to educate ourselves about our instincts. Because then we'll be going, of course, of course, of course I'm feeling this way. These are just my instincts and they're human and they're absolutely normal. And that's when we can let go of the guilt and the shame we experience around these instincts. We can accept and honor our experiences and come to terms with them. As they say, what you resist persists. Big idea number three, information alone doesn't transform habits. So educating ourselves about our instincts is a great first step. But it's not enough to make permanent changes in our life. In order to do that, we've got to let action follow education. This isn't always so easy though, and as Michael suggests, we need structures, support, and accountability in order to change our behavior. So here's a reminder of some of the best practices that Michael has shared with us today. The first, gratitude. Another one, letting go of secrets. Another one, ending resentment and practicing forgiveness. Another one, having a red, yellow, and green circle around the pleasures in our life. Remember, we want to avoid the red ones, monitor the yellow ones, and spend as much time as possible in the green ones. Michael also reminds us the importance of having a few close relationships with people that we trust. Being in open communication about our feelings and instincts is one of the best ways to live in integrity.
Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast, and I'm excited to deepen our relationship, to get to know each other better over time, and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, And we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other and living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.